You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. One of the most difficult challenges in diabetes care is the initiation and maintenance of insulin therapy in type 2 diabetes. Joining us to discuss insulin therapy in type 2 diabetes is Director of the University of Southern California Clinical Diabetes Programs in Los Angeles, California, Dr. Ann Peters. Dr. Peters, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Okay, Ann, this first question seems really simple, and I know it gets out there a lot, but I think it's more complicated than most people think with all the new oral agents coming out. When do you decide to use insulin therapy? And most of our listeners are out in the trenches seeing patients every single day. The short answer is is when the other agents we have available that aren't insulin aren't working. But I think it is actually more complicated than that because I often see patients who need insulin earlier rather than later because the oral agents just really aren't working. Their A1Cs are above 8 and adding another oral agent which may only give you 1% reduction may not be enough. Insulin, I actually like a lot. It's a naturally occurring hormone. You can give it if you know how to use it. I think it actually offers patients a a very nice way to get their blood sugars down. So I think it really, when I look at a patient, I look at the oral agents they're on, maybe if they're on an injectable GLP-1 agonist. I see what their A1C is. I see what their lifestyle is and then decide to use it once their blood sugars either begin to become higher than I want them to, and for me that's an A1C of above 7 in most cases, or if they seem to be on lots of oral agents that just aren't making it, they're really struggling to keep their A1C in a good range, then I will also add insulin. So just to just to f- summarize that, if you had to pick one A1C value in a patient that's on multiple orals, what is that level when you say, okay, we got to go to insulin? I know it's not that cut and dry, but is it 8? Is it 8.5? Just for our listeners. Oh, no, it's 7. Because if I want to keep somebody below 7, and I'm not talking about an older patient with cardiovascular disease. I'm talking about a 50-year-old with type 2 diabetes on you know three or four agents. If their A1C starts creeping much above 7 on, on two visits, then I'll start insulin because I really want their A1C to be below 7. We talk about patient inertia all the time. You know, they're always pushing back. I think every listener on the radio knows that, you know, they're fighting insulin patients to start insulin. But what about the role of professional inertia, and, and we'll talk about how we maybe address some of those barriers as well. I think if you don't use insulin a lot, it is something that's not simple because there are things that one has to remember. You have to teach the patient how to give the insulin. You have to talk about adjusting the insulin, and you have to talk about hypoglycemia. And then there are all those little things in between. What do I do with the needles? You know, Where do I store the insulin? There are a lot of questions. So I think one of the ways to overcome professional inertia is to have the tools nearby. So you have information sheets, you have um, guides to give your patients that might make it easier. But I think that fundamentally we all need to think of insulin as something that is, in fact, simple. We have insulin pens for most of the patients with type 2 diabetes. We're just adding in a basal insulin And I think that the more the provider feels comfortable with it, that it's not the end of the line, but just another tool, another piece of what we have to treat our patients, I think it becomes somewhat easier. Is there anything emotional that you tell patients that might help our listeners, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, convince them to try insulin? I think 
that there are a lot of questions patients have. So many patients have seen bad things happen to family members who've gone on insulin. They've gone on insulin too late. They've ended up going on insulin and then six months later going blind or losing a limb. And I talk about the value of early insulin therapy. I say you're not like your grandmother, mother, sister, aunt, whatever. I say this is something that gives you your own power. And I think insulin's really nice. People don't quite really appreciate this, but that it's adjustable. So people say to me, you know, is this forever? And I always say, I can't say that anything's forever. If You know, it's possible people get off of insulin. It's not likely, I think, in the back of my brain, but I certainly know it's possible. And so I have had patients who've gone on insulin, have learned how to titrate the dose up, and then have really changed their lifestyle, their habits, and then ended up titrating back down. And again, it's that nice quality. You can titrate it up and down. And I think it's just uh, something that I really these days don't make a big deal about. I don't say it's a failure of other agents. I don't talk about it as the end of the line. I just talk about it as something that I'm going to integrate into the therapy. And then, you know, patients, many of my patients, I don't give tons of education, but as an endocrinologist, I actually don't have a diabetes educator who teaches my patients how to do this. I do all the teaching within a clinic visit, and a clinic visit is 15 to 20 minutes. And I've just really gotten down my routine. I have the handouts that I like to give my patients. I'll give an injection of, you know, show how to give an injection on myself if they haven't given one. I'm pretty matter-of-fact about it, and I think it really helps the patients. You know what? I've I've learned something great from you once again, and they know when my patients say to me, do I have to be on this the rest of my life? You know, that's a tough one because if you say no, um, you, know, you're, you may not be telling them the whole truth because most of the time, you know, once you need insulin, unless there's come up with a cure. But I, I like that line, nothing is forever, you know, marriage, anything else. Um, I, I wanted to just give the listeners my pearl. Is I, I tell patients, I say, listen, let's just give it 30 days. And if, if the shots are too painful, if your blood sugars don't come down, if you don't feel better, we'll stop it. And they look at me and they go, really? I say, yeah, we'll stop it. You know, you're, you're, you're surviving now without it. And so that feeling of inevitability, they, you know, they don't like. But I'll tell you what, uh, I, I, I can say never in this case. I have never had a patient come back and say, I want to go off it. And that's, that's uh, also assuming that I've titrated the dose and they're, they're pretty satisfied with it. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, an area that I think I want to spend a lot of time on, which are the different insulin regimens. The simplest thing is to give a basal insulin. And... We have two basal insulins that I most commonly use, which are Glargine or Lantus or Detimer, which is Levomir, and they come in pens, and you just start with a dose at bedtime, and my usual starting dose is 10 units, and then I either go up on the dose by a unit or two every day or every couple days to get them down, or I teach the patient to self-adjust. And I think teaching the patient to self-adjust is a great way to do it. You give them a target for the morning, say, of 100 or 120. I might not have my lowest target at first, and I just have them go up one unit every night until they get to that target blood sugar. And then I continue the oral agents. Now, I don't always continue the highest dose of things. So say a patient's on metformin. I just continue the metformin because I think metformin's a great drug. It's been shown to be really effective in combination with insulin, I'll usually either stop or reduce the sulfonylurea agent dose if they're on a sulfonylurea agent so that they don't develop hypoglycemia. 
And then if they're on a TZD, I tend to lower that dose as well. TZDs work great with insulin, but you may get more edema and weight gain. So I'll go down on that dose. So I, I, I end up usually having them on metformin at the max tolerated dose maybe a little bit of a TZD, and then the insulin by the end. Great, Anne. I have a few more questions regarding combination therapy. But first, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Ann Peters. We are discussing insulin therapy in type 2 diabetes. Now, Ann, two comments on what you just said. Um, one is, if a patient is ultimately going to need about 50 or 60 units, if if you start off with one unit every night, that may be too slow and a patient may not see a benefit and get discouraged. Do you ever titrate or communicate with the patient in the first couple of weeks to try to ramp them up until you they start to see a reduction? All the time. So I, I'm, I'm saying what the simplest route is because if you go up a unit a day by the end of a month, you're up by 30 units. But if a patient is way out of control or very large, I may go up by, have them go up by two units. And there are some patients where they're way out of control. Their fasting is 250 or 260, and I, I want to get them up faster. And then I have them email me every couple days, and I will go up much faster. But if I'm going up a lot faster, I tend to make sure that I have a hand in it. So the self-titrate doses, I'll have them titrate titrate one to two units in general, but if it's me titrating, I'll go up much faster. Do you use premix, and how do you use it? I tend to use premix insulin in patients who I can't get to either mix or give insulin before meals independently, but I'm a real fan of using the doses of short-acting and long-acting insulin as separate entities, but if I have a patient, like I said, who can't do that, getting a patient to be at target or as close to target as possible safely is really my goal. So what I would generally do is when I'm starting mealtime insulin, I, it doesn't really matter how you do it because there's so many ways, but I'll start with the biggest meal, which for most of my patients is dinner time, and I'll have them start with a dose of insulin, which I may just start at six units um, or eight units, depending on the size of the person. And, and I may have them check postprandials after dinner for a little bit just to make sure that's the big increase. And then I'll just put them on the insulin before that meal and then increase that as I need to to start covering that meal. And inherent in doing that, I start teaching the patient about some degree of self-adjustment. So I have them learn about a correction, how to give extra if their blood sugar is 200 or 300. And then I have patients who intermittently decide to diet, and they may eat salad one night, and then they may eat pasta the next. And so I might start having them do some dose adjusting based on small, medium, or large meals. But I get them used to that one meal, insulin before that meal, all the while giving them the basal insulin. And then as I begin to see their response, then the patient themselves often will say, well, I should give this before breakfast, and maybe I need to give it before lunch. And before you know it, they're actually giving insulin before all the meals. Just in closing, um, as you know, we've been using Bieta for years. Now we have Victoza. Um, you know, how do you see that uh, in relation to insulin therapy? Off-label in my own practice, I do combination use not infrequently, and I always make sure patients know it's off-label, but they're doing studies. That's really the unanswered question as to when will that become an approved indication for the GLP-1 agonist because it makes such sense to use with insulin. 
Currently, they're just labeled to be used either with oral agents or as monotherapy, and then you use them before insulin. But they make a lot of sense for those patients who are already on insulin to add it in. It doesn't make sense to stop the insulin and add a GLP-1 agonist in most cases because the patients will lose control, and that's not a good thing. You know what? I totally agree. Well, both you and I have read... uh studies that are going to be presented soon at the American Diabetes Association meetings looking at basal insulin plus GLP-1 agonist during the day, and I think the data is pretty exciting. Well, we're coming to the end of our show, and I'd like to thank our guest, Director of the University of Southern California Clinical Diabetes Programs in Los Angeles, California, Dr. Ann Peters. Dr. Peters, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients... That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com dia.